Hey, Zach. Yes, Violet? Our first episode on the leadership of Black HIV-AIDS activists like Rashida is so inspiring and eye-opening. The movie Philadelphia took place in 1993, but the work of Black AIDS activists in Philadelphia showing how AIDS was disproportionately impacting people of color was something that people like Rashida were pointing out as soon as 1985. That's eight years before the movie came out. Yes, it's incredible. If you're just catching us and are new to our series, we're revisiting the iconic 1993 film, Philadelphia, to see what the movie did and did not get right when it comes to the history of the AIDS pandemic. The movie follows the relationship of Andy Beckett, a white gay man with AIDS, and his lawyer, Joe Miller, a straight, married, African-American man, as they team up to fight against Andy's former law firm, a big bad law firm of bigoted, heterosexist men. The whole movie takes place in Philadelphia, the movie's namesake, a city well known for being majority black. Yes, it strikes me as strange that we get very little evidence, if any, of the spread of AIDS in the black community. But there were so many references to race and the civil rights movement in the movie. Exactly. There's this scene in the movie that I can't shake. It's the one in the library where a librarian has brought a law book on HIV discrimination to Andy. And we know from the previous shot that Joe, who has refused to help Andy up until this point, looks on from afar. Sir? This is the supplement. You're right. There is a section on HIV-related discrimination. Thank you. Thank you very much. We do have a private research room available. I'm fine right here. Thank you. But this time, the librarian and everyone around Andy has made the connection between Andy's lesions and gaunt body that he has AIDS. Everyone gets really shifty. No. Would it make you more comfortable? Oh, uh, Beckett, how you doing? Counselor. The look in Joe's eyes shows that he knows this scene because it's strikingly similar to a page right out of civil rights history. As a black man, it clicks in Joe's head that Andy has just been asked, just like black people in the South under Jim Crow, to accept separate accommodations. Instead of race, however, Andy's discrimination is based on disease and disability. We know throughout time, this is often how the relationship between race and homosexuality gets cast. Being gay is like being black, 
and discrimination on the basis of sexuality, just like race and the civil rights movement, is best solved through law. Although the ruling did not address the specific issue of HIV and AIDS discrimination, subsequent decisions have held that AIDS is protected as a handicap under law, not only because of the physical limitations it imposes, but because the prejudice surrounding AIDS exacts a social death which precedes which precedes the actual physical one. This is the essence of discrimination, formulating opinions about others not based on their individual merits, but rather on their membership in a group with assumed characteristics. You know, what's so fascinating is that in this scene, that Joe, a middle-class black professional, a lawyer, literally embodies the idea that racial discrimination is in the past and that the fight against discrimination is now embodied in Andy, a gay man still facing sexual discrimination. Yes, it establishes what people call a series of false equivalencies, that being a white gay man is the same as being a straight black man. This reminds me of another scene in the movie. The, the Christmas, Christmas scene. scene. Uh, Andy, the way, the way that you've handled this whole thing, you and Miguel, with, with so much courage, I don't believe there's anything that, that anyone could say that would make us feel anything but incredibly proud of you. I didn't raise my kids to sit in the back of the bus. Get in there and you fight for your rights. Okay. In this episode produced by Elizabeth, Ezra, Lucy, and Nadia, we really explored this false equivalency by looking to white gay leaders who suddenly found themselves contending with a pandemic that on one hand empowered gays and lesbians to fight against AIDS, but also on the other hand, push them to consider the limits of equating the fight against homophobia and AIDS with the fight against racism. Especially since, as we all know, racism is alive and well, both inside and outside of gay communities. Okay, so this is what, this takes, this goes back to the time when Action AIDS was formed, or was it, yeah, formed, because it was a very quick formation. It happened, like, almost like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there was a big meeting of, of uh, all the people who were buddies at St. Luke's. I made a speech about our needing to form something we called a meeting of people who were interested in forming a new organization. Well, on, on the one side of the street were rabid racist white people, and on our side of the street there were this 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 old ancient African American community that had been used to go from Pine Street down to about Washington Avenue, and mm-hmm. so it was a very interesting place to be. That was Jim Latrell discussing the environment in which Action AIDS, an AIDS education task force, was created. He created this organization to educate and reach out to the Black community that was ignored in the previous task force he worked with, the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. Hello, I'm one of your hosts, Ezra Incorvaya. 
Today in this podcast, we are going to explore and try to answer the question, how did white gay men deal with the question of race during the AIDS epidemic through the oral history of Jim Luttrell? And unfortunately, the answer to our initial question is nuanced and complicated. Many gay white men who held positions of power or were volunteers in many AIDS task forces were ignorant to their fellow gay black men and women affected by AIDS. We see this in the failings of white task forces not reaching out to black communities in their outreach and not including black men and women in their leadership through Jim Luttrell and his part of being stuck in the middle of being conscious of the concept of race and the ignorant organizers and volunteers. In 1986, Jim helped form Action AIDS, which eventually became Action Wellness, one of the largest AIDS service organizations in Philadelphia. Its offices and patients, in fact, were featured in the 1993 film Philadelphia. Jim came to AIDS activism through a surprising journey, one that begins with the church. For Jim, the church, in particular the Episcopal Church near Min College, attracted him because of its social justice work. It was the only church in town that was doing any civil rights work. And I got really involved in, in civil rights work in college uh, in this little southern town and uh, met up with these Episcopalians and I had a professor who was an Episcopal priest and decided the Episcopal Church was where I wanted to be if I was going to be in a church because they were doing this stuff. And so I, so I joined the Episcopal Church. Jim eventually became a minister in that church and moved to Philadelphia, where he found himself being very close to the civil rights movement here in Philly. And there was a bishop in Philadelphia named Bob DeWitt, who was the Episcopal bishop of this part of Pennsylvania, who was really prophetic and brave. He led the desegregation of Gerard College. He desegregated schools in Chester. He was of huge civil rights and sort of a radical civil rights uh, these days, he would have been a Black Lives Matter guy. He was he was very involved in supporting uh, the Panthers and had or he hired priests like me to do organizing in Philadelphia around welfare rights and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and I was I was really impressed with him. To avoid the draft, Jim ended up going to seminary, getting married, and then coming out as gay. To Jim, the work of the church, the work of civil rights activism around race, and being against the Vietnam War soon grew to include gay rights. To him, they were all part of doing the work of the church. Jim, with Lisa Rochette, who had written a book called Throwaway Children, pulled together a coalition that was able to bring 12 center city churches, Episcopal churches, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, UCC, at 17th and Spruce, which took on the name Voyage House in 1970. They started group homes, alternative high schools, counseling centers, and all sorts of amazing things. I became eventually the first executive director of the Philadelphia, what was it, at first the Philadelphia Gay Task Force, then became the Philadelphia Lesbian and Gay, or Lesbian and Gay Task Force, then became, and then went out of business. And the, for the bulk of the life of that organization, Rita Odessa was the director. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. I wasn't, I wasn't, well, I did, we did some good stuff, but I had just come out. I wasn't, I wasn't really maybe the best choice for that job. While Jim did not feel as if he was the best person for the organization as he had just come out, they did a lot of good things and started the non-discrimination policy at Penn, which was a big deal as Penn was the largest employer in Philadelphia and made an enormous impact on shifting the political tide in Philadelphia. I remember exactly the first time I heard of HIV. I was, um, 
after I came out, I had a hard time getting a job in the Episcopal Church. Uh, in fact, I couldn't. I couldn't find a job. No one would hire a gay priest, um, and which is one of the reasons I did the the task force job. As the Philadelphia Task Force director, Jim had a health scare where he tested positive for HIV. I went to get a test in Atlantic City as soon as the test became available. But I went to Atlantic City because I because it was far away because I was free. And I tested positive for HIV in Atlantic City. And then I came back and uh, and John tested, retested me and I came back negative. And in those days, tests took a really long time. To, it's like six weeks, as I remember. Before. Jim did not have AIDS, but from that point on, he began going to a support group for people, mostly gay men, who lived with HIV and AIDS. Eventually, this group realized the support other people living with AIDS needed. And from there, the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force was born. That small group began to grow, and as you can tell from our first episode, tensions began to grow between racial groups, but tensions also began to grow between white gay men. I would say it, ro- it arose out of differences with the, well, as you said early on when we were talking before we started taping, that there was a chaotic time. By the time this became an epidemic, clearly an epidemic, and people started dying like flies all over the place. Um, I think chaos is a fair way of describing how we all felt, although we didn't we didn't behave particularly chaotically. By chaos, Jim meant not only the number of rumors about the disease, rumors such as it only affected gay white men, you could catch it from a doorknob, a toilet seat, or a swimming pool, and it was developed by the government to kill off gay and black people, but also the effect the rumors had in fomenting tension. By the mid-1980s, the idea that AIDS was a white gay disease, although a rumor, caused many white gay men to join the fight against AIDS. When they joined, they believed they were fighting homophobia, not racism. These ideas caused tensions. At first, people got along. I think we did incredible things. I mean, this this little band of people that grew into a larger and larger group of people doing all this stuff. That initial formation, though, was at the task force, and it... And there were tensions inside that organization. I became a vice president and tender of a couple of programs inside. Bob Schoenberg was helped put together and, and eventually shepherded the kind of social support services piece of the task force. There was an education chunk of work that was doing prevention and education. We were, we were all, you know, people with strong opinions about everything. As a leader in the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force, Jim found himself managing a lot of different interests. Some of the white gay men in the organization came from social justice organizing backgrounds just like him. One of them was David Fair. David was also an AIDS activist known for giving Babashi their first office space. He and Jim butt heads with David being more militant and not buckling under the pressure of the more conservative leaders. Other gay men, however, did not come from activist backgrounds, but were medical professionals and middle-class residents of Center City, like Nick Ift, who were less interested in the social factors that accounted for the epidemiology of the disease and were more interested in care, treatment, and research of the disease, and or in fighting homophobia as if it was just only a problem in white gay communities. And so there was more and more tension, but the other tension than I and some others felt anyway arose uh, out of the racial composition of the group, which was pretty much all white. 
and pretty much all male. Luttrell illustrates that it was not the tension of the issue of racism in itself within the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force, but the demonstrative power of the lack of interest in engaging with minority groups within that leadership community that was the cause of the tensions and a catalyst for Luttrell to seek out change. We will find later that the leadership did also play a role in the tensions and Jim's eventual leaving of the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. But he, at some point, fired one of David's shots across the bow of this organization and, and sort of called us out about race. And the response of the most of the leadership was to say it's not an issue. We don't have time to just ignore it. And it really pissed me off. Well, it pissed him off too, I think, but it really, I was inside the organization getting pissed off. And it, 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 it made Anna, I think, very mad too. And so I think for, I don't know if she would have said this or not, but I think that was for me one of the really important things that we tried to do. What also needs to be mentioned is that Jim and David immediately clashed. To Jim, David was too loud and angry for him. They may have both been on the same side, but David was a lot further on the side than Jim to a fault. Jim, unlike David, was also a leader inside the organization who was trying to push the white men and the PCHA to do the same thing. In short, David's criticism was making it harder, not easier, for Jim to move the white men in the organization to be better about issues of race. But it came from an understandable place of outrage and the fact that Jim didn't push hard enough. When we put the Action Aids board together, we went. We spent a huge amount of time making sure it was a, a board that was uh, reflective of the population we were working with, which was still, at that point, you know, were lots and lots and lots of gay white men dying of AIDS and lots and lots of gay black men dying of AIDS. I, at the same time, I think that my memory of it was that there were I remember board meetings where David would come in and shout and scream. I remember a lot of shouting, but there was always a lot of shouting. <laughs> I just remember, you know, there was a lot of anger. And I said, I guess I sort of thought, well, there's a lot of anger. Of course there's a lot of anger. Heck, can that be a lot of anger? We're all angry. Um, and it was also, you know, there's a lot of energy in anger if you harness it. So I thought, well, that's good. Tensions don't just go away, especially when they are ignored. As we heard in episode 1, tensions in the PCHA led to Rashida Hassan, de facto leader of the African American AIDS activists, to resign and start Bibashi. One of the reasons that Bibashi had to come into being was because those organizations that existed to provide public health education for minority people didn't, couldn't, haven't, won't provide education for the minority community. Black people are also being discriminated against even within the gay community when it comes to being educated about AIDS. I know some of you may be offended by the fact that I would say anything against the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. But I think what's important to understand is that's where the resources are. And our people, minority, those differing comparatively to the population, have the right to be educated, have the right to have resources committed, have the right to stand here with you and say that we are dying from this disease. 
and you are making it our disease. If in your presentations to your community, you don't remember the Hispanics and you don't remember the blacks, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we will be there to haunt you for it. Rashida's resignation did not just spur black activists to form and spend more energy on a separate black aid service organization, but also spurred white activists committed to cross-cultural interracial organizing to form their own. For Jim, this new organization was Action AIDS. When we put the Action AIDS board together, we went. We spent a huge amount of time making sure it was a, a board that was uh, reflective of the population we were working with, which was still, at that point, you know, were lots and lots and lots of gay white men dying of AIDS and lots and lots of gay black men dying of AIDS, and uh, more and more women uh, living with HIV and dying of AIDS. So, we wanted to uh, a board that reflected all of that, and I mean, we I think we achieved that. We had a board that was about half and half, um, black and white, and not just you know not just a show board, but a working board with really good people uh, working away on this first board of action hands. Um, but we also decided that our focus would be on providing care and ancillary doing ancillary work like the prison work. Latrell worked to do what the previous organizations could not, or we could even say would not do. He worked hard in Philadelphia, but that couldn't change what most people saw AIDS as. American society still only saw it as a white gay man's disease, and the task forces being made up of only white gay men didn't help. That fueled ACT UP, that fueled the formation of these organizations that I was involved with. Um, and it reminds what's going on today in terms of the resistance uh, in these early, early days, and these are very early days. Luttrell notes the unity that ACT UP had, but also was wary of the anger in which it came from. We see the good and the progress that ACT UP made with their many demonstrations. ACT UP became known for demonstrations known as die-ins, where they would lay in front of government buildings that they covered in posters demanding for those who have been affected and infected to get the care and recognition they need and deserve. Some of the protest signs that can be described as pieces of art that have been brought to these die-ins include tombstones that say killed by the FDA or killed by the system, signs that increase with each death, and signs made to look like coffins, and even actual coffins. With these numerous protests across the country, ACT UP forced more medical research to be done and helped save millions of lives of people who would have died from AIDS. They also reached out to the homeless populations to provide aid and facilitated needle exchange for IV drug users to use safely and decrease the spreading rate of AIDS. Today, because we're tired of this administration and we're going to take the ashes of some of our friends and drop them on the steps of the White House because we're not going to take it any longer. Every day somebody is... They're guilty of genocide and murder. They've allowed, they along with poor President Reagan, allow the AIDS pandemic to go virtually without any action and a response to the death of possibly millions of people. It's going to get bigger and bigger. And they did nothing at a time when they could have paid money for education to stop the spread of this pandemic, not only in the United States, but in other countries. And so they're war criminals. They're guilty of genocide.
Despite its militancy, however, ACT UP was not free of racism. Here's Dan Royals, author of To Make the Wounded Whole. He interviewed one poor black person with AIDS who recalled his impression of white ACT UP members like David, Davis, and Russell, who lived in Not Squat, a group house in West Philadelphia. Quote, I took it as a slap in the face when I went to visit one, one of their houses. They chose to live in a place with windows missing, no clean bathroom, and a hole in the living room floor. And that is offensive to people who have to live that way, who don't have rich parents, and who can't go home to the main line. Another interview, interviewee decided, after attending a handful of ACT UP Philadelphia meetings, quote, I can't do it with them because they don't get the poor Black thing. When they talk to us, they talk to us in patronizing, condescending way. And when they talk to each other, the dialogue is between people who are pretty well educated. But they treat us in really simplistic terms, like we don't understand anything past the two-syllable word. During the 70s and 80s, and even further before, there was a large increase in white people moving into predominantly black and Latinx neighborhoods for cheaper, and then renovating and driving up the property value, what is now referred to as gentrification. This combined with housing segregation has pushed many minorities to only be able to get the houses that the white ACT UP members actively choose to live in. According to Timothy Stewart Winter, this adds to a larger system of racism that many white gay men unknowingly and sometimes knowingly benefited from. Here's his thoughts read by a voice actor. In the decade and a half after 1968, however, as urban gay subcultures flourished, many urban gay organizations shifted their focus from policing the police to policing employers. This shift occurred in part because police entrapment of gay men in public places and routine police raids on gay and lesbian establishments declined sharply. By the early 1980s, raids on the largest gay bars were no longer routine in any of the nation's largest cities. Another factor was that more and more gay people were coming out of the closet and realizing the cost in doing so. The forms of anti-gay police harassment that implicated middle-class whites declined sharply in most of the cities during the 1970s, simultaneous with the development of the racialized apparatus of mass incarceration. White gays and lesbians, no longer subjected to previous levels of arrest, prosecution, and incarceration, moved toward a, recon a reconciliation with the law and order state. This problem reaches further than just white gay men deciding to be racist during the 80s after seeing themselves parallel to the civil rights movement in the 70s. There was a shift to this that was slowly in the making due to gay people being finally seen as more accepted and white gay men beginning to get their taste of suburbia and shifting to be more like their white conservative neighbors and trying to protect themselves during the AIDS crisis. Dan Royals also mentions a bit about ACT UP and their work. He said, ACT UP in general, I think, had some of the same problems that groups like Philadelphia AIDS Task Force had. Um, and that is, they were groups that, they're, they're both groups that are kind of populated largely by white gay men, um, without necessarily the kind of understanding of how they are experiencing AIDS and how that experience is different from the way that other folks, um, you know, particularly folks of color, black communities are experiencing AIDS. I think ACT UP in general is a little bit better than Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. It has some different, um, you know, kind of intellectual um, or social movement predecessors. And there are some folks in, in ACT UP who are much more deliberate about pushing the group into anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-colonial directions. Um, you know, but by and large, they're kind of of a piece, right? Um, you know, the, the, the 
people of color in ACT UP and you know the Black folks in ACT UP in particular, um, you know, recall, you know, some 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 moments of profound blindness um, among the white organizers. As in Philadelphia is a little bit different, um, especially when we get into the um, you know the late '90s moment because they're really trying to consciously have an organization that works for, for people of color and poor black people really in Philadelphia. People like ActionAids, we see the problems that ACT UP and ActionAids have been repeated, but with small modifications, which can be predicted since similar, if not the same people were involved in the leadership and volunteering of the organizations. This also harkens to a systematic level in which the black community is being ignored in AIDS activism and healthcare in general. There's still, it's still a group that has a kind of core of white, HIV negative, largely middle class organizers who are trying in good faith to organize poor people of color. Um, and there are some tensions that come up around that. Um, but, you know, on the whole, on the whole, they're trying to, you know, do really good anti-racist organizing, but I think that's always a process, um, more than it is a destination. It's something that you continually have to work at and not something that you ever necessarily achieve. And the folks from Asset Philadelphia, I think are, were and are very aware of the power dynamics within the group and what those power dynamics bring to, or how those power dynamics complicate their organizing. Um, you know, but they are much more aware of those dynamics than were folks, say, in Philadelphia AIDS Task Force or in Actum, New York in the late 80s, early 90s. There's one idea that he brought up that I find interesting. The idea that anti-racism is a process and not a destination. This idea is an important realization that we should discuss in terms of ACT UP then and ACT UP now and organizations like ACT UP. Anti-racism, much like ACT UP, is not a black and white issue. It exists in shades of gray. Many organizers can be volunteering, as stated by Dan Royals, in good faith, but still miss the mark by a little bit. This is where the importance of organizations providing workshops that would come in on the leadership level. Fun fact, ACT UP is still around today. When asked about ACT UP in the modern day, John Andres, director of the John Wilcox Jr. Archive, said, So ACT UP very much still exists. Um, it is not as large of an organization, um, uh, perhaps as it was during the height of the of the AIDS crisis, um, but ACT UP really remade itself after the development of protease inhibitors, and um, decided to really uh, dedicate their efforts to um, to people living in poverty, to housing issues, to people of color, um, to the issue of AIDS in Africa. Um, so it still exists today. It meets, um, it meets during non-pandemic times, weekly uh, at St. Luke and the Epiphany, where it has, I think, maybe always met. Um, and during the pandemic, um, they use uh, one of our uh, Zoom accounts and have Zoom meetings. Um, so they continue to do work. And, you know, they, their issues are um, definitely 
certainly include HIV AIDS, but also go, go beyond that um, to deal with things like poverty and housing. And probably today, they are certainly dealing with issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic. What I and many others have been finding throughout researching this project, and many others like it, is that nothing is truly black and white, good or bad. We as people exist in many shades of gray, some lighter or darker than others. With this idea in mind, we must analyze the balance of those grays in our history. Reading the words of Deborah Gold, author of ACT UP, Racism, and the Question of How to Use History, is myself. The claim that ACT UP was a racist organization moralizes the activist past rather than using it to inform contemporary struggles. Its implicit demand to disregard ACT UP seems anxious as if discussing this flawed organization might contaminate and compromise one's own politics. An approach to activist history that instead expects imperfection examines how mistakes come about and studies past activist experiences with an eye toward how they could strengthen contemporary struggles to remake the world might alleviate that anxiety and offers an alternative to what seems to me a damaging activist purism. With all of this discussion of being conscious of the issue of race, we must also ask what is racism and what acts are racist and how one can be anti-racist. When asked, Dan Royals said, I think there were probably a lot of white gay men who did not think of themselves as racist, um, you know, who probably thought of racism as being maliciously discriminatory toward people of a different race, who nonetheless were kind of willing to countenance a response to AIDS that was discriminatory in its effects and that, you know, people who needed services in the black community were not getting them because they did not have the connection to uh, a predominantly white and segregated gay community. So it comes down to how we think about what racism is, right? that racism is not just me being an asshole to somebody who is black because I'm a white man. And I, um, if we only think about racism in that way, then we end up with, and we have, um, you know, to borrow from the title of, of a, a pretty well-known book, racism without racism, because we still have institutions, we have social structures, that are racist in their origins and in their effects. And so that's where I think you get a lot of the conflict um, that comes up in, in the Philadelphia AIDS community. Because for white people in a post-civil rights world, to be called a racist is like the worst thing that somebody can call you. It's, it's, it's felt as a personal attack. But what people are describing are the effects on their community that you are not willing to to fight against you know if you're not willing to fight for equitable aid services for you know black people from the institutions that you are part of heavily invested in contributing to then does that make you a racist does that make you a racist well your your actions are racist, the actions of these institutions are racist and you know, you're not challenging them. So 
you know, I think we, we, we need to think of racism less as an not not as a quality that people have or don't have because that's not productive. But we live in a society that is largely structured, um, deeply structured around racial difference. Dan Royals brings up an important point here that many white gay men during the 1980s thought about themselves as not racist because they aren't like the incredibly rabid racists, in the words of Jim Luttrell, and find that even being thought of as racist is incredibly insulting. And so we all live in that world. We all take part in, in the institutions that shape that world. And so, you know, what we need more than to kind of point out who is or is not racist is to have a kind of critical perspective on, on how race shapes the world that we live in and what we can do about it. And that's what I think people in this, this story were lacking. And that's where you get the conflict is when it becomes a, when it becomes for for the white gay men in the story an issue of hurt feelings, then everything gets shut down and there's no path forward. But you know when we can take a real critical look at our society and the institutions that that make it up, then maybe we can do something more about it. The points that Dan Royals brings up in this interview that will allow us to take a look at our initial question. How did white gay men deal with the issue of race during the AIDS crisis? The answer is still nuanced and still leans towards no actions were taken to deal with the issue of race, but the way we see the term and concept of racism and a person being racist is different. During this time, the only way to be not racist is to be explicitly and forcibly anti-racist, like Jim Luttrell. Men like Luttrell and other gay white men have benefited from the racist system that has been created and around for hundreds of years. This could allow us to ask and subsequently answer the question, why weren't gay white men conscious of the issue of race during the AIDS epidemic? And with the answer being that they were looking out for people like them during the crisis, hearkening back to the idea of making sure your house isn't on fire before pointing out your neighbors. However, there's still the implicit privilege that many gay white men had during the AIDS crisis and still have now. With that idea, this still boils down to effort. Many gay white men knew what was happening to the black community or were so blind that they couldn't see their own neighbor suffering and didn't put in the effort for more than just themselves. From the buddy system to medical care, it always benefited them the most. In the black community, the homeless and IV drug users got the scraps. Out of all of this we see with ACT UP and other task forces, they did do a lot of good and are still doing a lot of good for marginalized communities from a framework that Jim Luttrell spent most of his life creating and trying to include as many people as possible in, with the tensions of his anti-racist ideals and the racist volunteers clashing. I would like to leave you all with the idea of applying this to the activism I and many other young adults are participating in today. They are united in an anger that has been questioned creating and innovating on the framework of previous organizations to do more than those that came before, and all of this while working to save people from a pandemic. It's the same outline with different colors. There is the common saying by George Santayana that states, those who do not repeat the past are condemned to repeat it. But here, with the strides the younger generations are making, we can be proud of the courage that grows with the repetition and hope the cycle will end here. I think keeping this idea in mind, Let's end with a quote from Jim Luttrell.
but I'm really, really impressed with the rapidity with which people are getting organized in a really serious way, you know, not just sort of floundering and flailing about, but actually building out constructs that will last. And that's what we tried to do in those days, was actually construct stuff that could sustain this onslaught and sustain those of us who were involved and affected by it. I don't think the early movement right now is on purpose very good at taking care of its members so much, but I think that will come. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope to see you again soon. This podcast is made by a talented team and thanks need to be given. This podcast has been produced by our team Elizabeth Solon, Nadia Etamad, Ezra Incorvaya, and Lucy Helgren. Sound design in this episode has been done by Ezra Incorvaya. Thanks to our series hosts, Zach Levy-Dyer and Violet Rose Collins. The Other Streets of Philadelphia, The Early AIDS Crisis in the City of Brotherly Love is a project in which myself and other hosts explore early AIDS history in Philadelphia through oral histories told by those who are at the forefront of the movement. These histories are brought to you by the John Wilcox Library, Philadelphia's most extensive collection of personal papers, organizations' records, periodicals, audiovisual material, and ephemera documenting the rich history of our LGBTQ community. We here thank you for your time and hope you tune in to the rest of the episodes as well.